One night, a mother was uh, putting her son to bed. It was the night before his fifth birthday, so the little guy was really excited. So as the mother was tucking him into bed, said, you know, Kevin, this is the last night you're going to be four years old. Do you understand that? Little guy raised up the four fingers to show that he got the message. I mean, over the past year, whenever somebody would ask him, Kevin, how old are you? This is the way he would always respond, hold up four fingers and show people I'm four years old. But now that he was turning five, he would have to use the thumb as well as the fingers. So his mother nodded her head and said, I, I see you got the message. So, Kevin, when you go to sleep tonight, you're still going to be four years old. But, Kevin, tomorrow morning when you wake up, how old are you going to be? And Kevin smiled and holding up the thumb as well as all his fingers, he said, Mom, tomorrow I'm going to be a handful. <laughs> I, I think that little boy said a lot more than what he realized. Here on Mother's Day, I think there are many of you who can really understand and appreciate the challenge that Jesus is facing in this scripture we're going to study, the scripture that Teresa quoted so beautifully. You see, when Jesus called James and John to be his disciples, these two young men that he's talking to, these two young men that he's trying to work with, when Jesus asked James and John, come and follow me, boy, did he get a handful. I think many times we forget how young these 12 disciples were. You know, in first century Israel, kids would begin their training going to school around the age of five. But unless you made plans to go on and be a rabbi, a professional teacher, the schooling would finish at the age of 12. Because at that point in time, you were expected to go out and live like an adult. Go out and get a job and develop a career. Go out and get married. Raise a family. So in first century Israel, many times... Young ladies would get married around 13, 14, 15, and the young men, because they needed to earn some money and they needed some time to develop that career, many times they'd wait till about 18, 19, 20 before they'd settle down into some kind of family life. Well, we know that Peter was already married when Jesus called him to be a disciple, and that he and his brother Andrew already had their own business up and going, a fishing business. So Peter was probably one of the oldest of the 12. In fact, do you remember what happened in Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus is being challenged? Why don't you pay the temple tax? And do you remember how he handled that situation? He turns to Peter, not to any of the rest. He turns to Peter and he says, Peter, go down to the lake, cast the line, catch a fish. First fish you catch, there'll be some money there for us. And sure enough, Peter goes down to the Sea of Galilee. He casts the line. Immediately he gets a bite, pulls the fish out of the water, a big coin inside the mouth, enough to pay the tax for Peter and Jesus. Apparently, the other 11 were old enough at this time to have to even worry about this requirement. Because you see, in first century Israel, the law said you must be 20 years of age or older to pay the temple tax. So that's Peter and Jesus, but not the rest. So Peter's probably the oldest of the 12. And this young man that we're talking about here today and his brother John, he's probably the youngest. Maybe 14, 15 at this point in time. Because you remember how he and his brother James are still working with their father Zebedee when Jesus said, come follow me. Now, I'm saying all that just to emphasize this. These young men that he's trying to work with, they haven't experienced a lot of life yet. They're young, they're green, they're naive about a lot of things. They've got a lot to learn. And then the other thing to keep in mind so we can appreciate what we're reading here today, do you remember the nickname that Jesus gave to these two brothers? He called them the sons of thunder. Why? Because they're ambitious, they're driven, they're very aggressive in their personalities. I mean, if you had these two boys in your classroom, it'd be hard to keep them in their seats. They're up all the time wanting to do something. They can't sit still, and they can't keep their hands to themselves. They're all the time stirring things up and agitating and annoying others. 
And you can see that here in this scripture. Here's an example of that. You get down to verse 41 and you, you hear the other ten are so angry and upset because here's James and John once again pulling a fast one, making a move that's going to benefit them, but at the expense of everybody else, ha ha, we're not going to put up with that. And Jesus must be ready to pull his hair out. See, when he called James and John to be his disciples, he got more than a handful. Look at what it says here. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, a rabbi, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wow, this is so bold. But not if you know James and John. Man, this is just typical of their nature. When they see something they want, they don't hold back. They go after it with everything they've got. In fact, when Matthew records the same event, Matthew chapter 20, he tells us they got their mother involved in the conversation. They had their mom help them make this request because mom happens to be a relative of Jesus. So they're playing the family card. They're adding a little clout to their request. They're putting a little extra pressure on Jesus. Hey, Jesus, how can you turn us down? It's your own kin who are making the request. See, these two boys are not shy in using any kind of leverage they can to get whatever they want. Well, what do they want? Look at verses 36 and 37. Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I so admire Jesus. He is so polite, so patient. I mean, if I had these two young men approaching me like they're approaching Jesus, bold in your face, trying to twist your arm, subtly trying to manipulate, bringing mom along to put a little extra pressure, man, this whole scenario would just get under my skin, and I'd want to snap back and put those two young men in their place. But Jesus is so patient. I mean, he knows what they're doing. They're not pulling the wool over his eyes, and yet Jesus just remains calm, and he simply asks a question, what is it that you want? So they explain. He said, well, let one of us sit at, your, sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. There's the key part of the phrase, in your glory. In the minds of James and John, hey, Jesus, when you sit on the throne, when you take power, we want to have the top places in your cabinet. One of us can be the prime minister and the other can be chief of staff. <laughs> Man, do you see the arrogance? Do you feel the pride? There's no modesty here at all. And yet these two don't understand what they're asking. I mean, as far as the earthly life and ministry of Jesus, when does Jesus appear in his moment of greatest glory? When he's on the cross. And at that point, who's on his right and who's on his left? Two criminals who are being crucified. These two boys have no clue what they're asking for. So Jesus very gently begins to point that out. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. <laughs> Do you remember the old church picnics? I know I'm showing my age here. I remember this as a little boy in some of the churches where my father would preach once a year late in the summer. On a Sunday afternoon, the entire church would gather together at a park for a huge, I mean a giant potluck, fried chicken, apple pie, all the fixings. And then there'd be a bunch of games, horseshoes, badminton, uh, volleyball, croquet. I know in this day and age with uh, screens and technology and digital games, that doesn't sound real exciting. But trust me, back then, that was a lot of fun. And then before the day was over, they'd have these group events. Uh, like the three-legged race, am I connecting with anybody at all? <laughs> Maybe you did this at a family reunion, but you know, every member of the family, you know, men, women, boys, girls, everybody team up in twos, and you were all going to run this race, but you had to run the race together, and you had to run the race in this way. You tie your right leg to their left leg. So instead of four legs, you got to run the race with three. And man, was that hard. It was so frustrating because it was so awkward and, and so cumbersome and, and you kept falling down. And the reason you kept falling down was because you were tied to somebody else. 
Don't you wonder if that's not the kind of frustration Jesus is feeling right now as he's trying to work with James and John? Father, Father, you know, this would be so much easier, so much more simple if I could just run the race by myself. But being tied to these 12 guys, especially James and John, this is really slowing me down. But you notice he doesn't make that complaint because Jesus understands this is the nature of love. Tying yourself to someone else and doing it deliberately so you can help them, so you can help them walk, so you can help them run, so you can help them move in a better direction. You know this as a parent. As a parent, when you begin to have children, suddenly you've got somebody in your life that can't stand on their own. They need somebody else to come alongside and help them. And the needs they have are just endless, dressing, feeding, bathing, teaching, reading them books that sometimes are going to be boring to you, but it's entertaining to them. Taking time to listen whenever they have something to say, even though it takes them 30 minutes to say what you could have said in five, but you stand there and you listen anyway. And those are just a few of the sacrifices that you begin to make over the next 20 years. For 20 years, you, you set aside your own independence so you can remain attached to them. And you remain attached to them so you can help them grow up and become these self-sufficient adults. For 20 years, you, sac you sacrifice your time, you sacrifice your freedom so you can remain available to them and help them become these healthy grown-ups who are prepared to function in the real world. Well, the sad thing is there are many parents who don't want to do that. They don't want their lives to be disrupted like that. They don't want to have to pour themselves out for the children. They don't want to make those kind of sacrifices. And so what happens? The kids grow up physically, but not emotionally. They're still little children in an adult body, needy, vulnerable, and dependent. You remember how the Apostle Paul put this? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul said, love is patient. Now, why would he say that? Because sometimes the people that God puts in your life, the people that God asks you to love and care for, are going to require your patience. They're going to say some stupid things. They're going to act in some foolish ways. Sometimes they're going to be hard to help. Sometimes, just like James and John, they're going to do things that just get under your skin. But unless somebody like Jesus is willing to come along and just patiently work with them and patiently walk with them and just keep teaching and just keep encouraging, unless they have that kind of help, they're not going to learn a better way to live. Or the Apostle Paul said, love is kind. Again, why did he say that? Because sometimes God's going to put people in your life. God's going to ask you to, to love and care for certain kinds of people who are going to be mean and selfish and difficult to love. They're not going to learn how to be kind and thoughtful unless, like Jesus, you make this commitment. I'm going to tie myself to you and I'm going to treat you better than you deserve. I'm going to be kind even when you're unkind. See, according to this scripture, according to Jesus, love means not giving up on others. It means you tie yourself to them so you can help them move in a better direction, so you can help them win the race. Now, there's a lot of other things going on in the scripture, and you can see all the details in the following verses, but I want you to skip down to verse 45. Because here's the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach, and here's the reason why Jesus remains tied to these 12 disciples even though many times they are so slow to catch on, and even though many times they try to run in the wrong direction, the very opposite of the way Jesus wants to lead them, the very opposite of the way Jesus wants to go. Jesus wants to go this way, and they want to go that way, and there's always this frustrating tug of war going on, but Jesus won't give up. And here's the reason why he remains committed to them. Verse 45, for the Son of Man, that's Jesus, 
He didn't come to this world to be served. No, he came to the world to serve. See, here's why Jesus cannot give these places of honor to James and John. Not yet. Because right now they don't have the right heart. See, James and John, they want the power. They want the authority because of what this position is going to do for them. Man, think about it. If we get the top spots in the kingdom of God, we got it made. We can call all the shots. Think of all the people who have to answer to us. Think of all the people who have to take orders from us. Think of all the benefits we're going to enjoy because they serve us. They're not seeing things the right way. Now, eventually, because of Jesus, they will see things differently. They will see that any power I have, any authority that has been given to me, it was given to me by God, but it was given to me by God so I could help others. But right now, they're not seeing that. So what is going to change their heart? Look at the last part of the verse. Jesus said, I came to this world to serve, but he came here to serve in a very specific way. He said, I came here to give my life as a ransom for many. Now we hear that word ransom and we think of the word kidnapping. Somebody's being held hostage. And the only way to get your loved one back safe and sound is if you pay a ransom. The note said, we will return your child when you give us $250,000. So the only way they're going to be set free is when you're prepared to make this costly exchange. The only way they're going to be released is when you are ready to pay a price. Well, that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He is paying a price for us. But to whom is he making that ransom? He's not making it to Satan. The only thing the devil receives at the cross is his defeat, his ruin. Notice that it says here, and Jesus gave his life. Nobody's twisting his arm. Nobody's forcing him to do this. He does this willingly. He's on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. And he does this voluntarily. He is there to pay the penalty for every one of the crimes we have committed. At the cross, Jesus is tying himself to us and our sin so that we can be set free. And now as a result, we can be tied to God, bonded to him. And through that bond, experience a brand new life. Well, it is this ultimate act of service on the part of Jesus that challenges every one of us to look at life a different way. Learn to see life the way Jesus does. You're not here to be served. You are here to serve. For many years, there was a, a professor at UCLA by the name of Dr. Sidney Walter. He taught psychology, and through the years, he did a number of studies where he would personally interview thousands and thousands of people. And every one of those studies, he was trying to figure out what is it that makes people happy on the job. And every time, this, every one of those studies came back to the very same conclusion. I mean, it didn't matter if you were working as a doctor or a lawyer, or you were working as a clerk at a shoe store, or you were working as a vendor at a baseball game. It didn't matter. If you thought the main purpose for your job was to make money, you're not going to be happy. I mean, money's nice, but it's only a means to an end. But if you're not chasing after the right goal, you're not going to be satisfied. Dr. Walter discovered it's not until you come to this realization that your occupation, no matter what that job may be, when you realize that your occupation is the reason you're doing this job is so you can help others, only then do you begin to experience that deep sense of joy. Now, why is that? Well, the Bible tells us why. We are made in the image of God, meaning we are made to be like Him. Well, what is God like? He loves to serve. He loves to help others. Here's the proof. Do you remember the night before the cross? Jesus is in the upper room with His 12 disciples. He's celebrating the Passover. And the Bible tells us, John chapter 13, on that night, Jesus takes a bowl of water, He gets down on His knees, and He begins to wash every one of the dirty feet of those 12 disciples. 
But do you remember what happens when he gets to Peter? Peter's upset, really agitated. And he, he begins to object. Jesus, what are you doing? Are you trying to wash my feet? Oh, man, this is so embarrassing. Messiahs are not supposed to act like this, down on your knees, acting like a slave. Jesus, this is so beneath you. No, it's not. He's not acting out of character. So Jesus gently takes a hold of Peter's foot, and he just basically says, Peter, this is the kind of Messiah I am. If you don't want this, then you don't want me, because this is who I am. It is my very nature to serve. On this night, when Jesus takes the bowl of water and he's washing the dirty feet, he's not doing something unusual. No, he's being true to the heart of God. He is showing us this is what God is like. He's always been this way. He always will be this way. It's just his nature to want to share, to want to give, to want to help others. That's the way he is. And that's the way we were made to be. So think back to that day when your mom took you to the store. You were only four years old. You weren't old enough yet to, to earn an, or make an allowance. But your mother brought you to the store so you could pick out a present for your older brother. He was about to have a birthday. And she wanted you to be a part of this celebration, too. So you're walking around the store trying to find something that you think your brother might like. And all of a sudden, you see it. Oh, yeah, my brother's going to like that. You look up at your mom, and, and she nods her head. Yep, yep, he's going to like this. So you grab the toy. You bring it to the front of the store. You set it on the counter, and your mother pays for it. You don't have any coins in your pocket. She buys it. But as you're walking out the store, she hands you the gift and says, now, this is your present for your brother. And as a four-year-old kid, you're confused. Mom, how can it come for me when I didn't pay for it? And your mother says, I gave it to you so that you could give it to him. That's us. Any talent, any ability, any opportunity that's been put before us, that was never ours. That was given to us by God, and it was given to us by God so we could help others. Rick Warren used to put it like this. God gave me a gift, but it's not for me. It's for you. And God gave you a gift, but it's not for you. It's for me. So if you're not using your gifts in a way that actually benefits me, you're depriving me. And if I'm not using my gifts in a way that actually benefits you, then I am robbing you. See, that's what James and John don't understand yet. That's why Jesus cannot yet give them these positions of honor because they don't have the right heart. Until they have this heart to serve, they're not going to be ready for the roles that God has designed for them. So think about it. What has God given to you? What kind of resources has he put in your hands? And how are you using those gifts to actually help others? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your unconditional love. For just the grace that you give to us through your son, Jesus Christ. The gift of life, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of peace, the peace of knowing that for all eternity we are saved. And then to thank God of how you gave that gift, that salvation to us at a time we didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it or merit it. God, your grace is amazing. So my prayer this morning, God, is may we never cease to be amazed by all that you've done through Jesus. In fact, God, that's why we're here today. We came here today because of Jesus, because we want to say thank you. And so we offer that gratitude in his name. Amen. Listen, 
Our heart here at New Hope is to serve. We really want to help. Sometimes we're kind of flawed and that, not always perfect, but we really do want to help, even today. So today, if, like Ben said at the very beginning of the service, if today you got some questions, questions about baptism, questions about how do you place your membership at New Hope, how do you get plugged into a place like this? You know, if any kind of question you have in your mind, we'd love to sit down and talk, just get better acquainted with you and, and find out how we can be of help to you. Or maybe today you're carrying a burden, you're going through a struggle, or you're facing some kind of challenge and just really not sure what to do. And more than anything else, what you really need is somebody just sit down with you and pray with you. We'd love to do that. Let us help. Let us know today how we can serve you. Let's stand and sing.